Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew in the very last few verses that is recorded in Matthew chapter 28. We'll be reading together in verses 16 through 20 of Matthew 28. The title of the, today's message is Christ's Commission, the Church's Mission. Christ's Commission, the Church's Mission. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thus says the Word of God. May God bless the reading of his word among his people. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as every word that we have just read is filled with authoritative power and unction of the Holy Spirit, may we be equally responding in appropriate yieldedness, surrender, obedience and faith. May you awaken us as a people to be committed, recommitted, renewed in the giving of ourselves even unto death in a task of proclaiming truth that worshippers might come to you. Father, we are a band of disciples full of worship and doubt. Would you use a people like us? We know you would. You delight to do so. May we give of ourselves in every way to the accomplishing of the obedience of this tremendous and wonderful mission. We go to all the world with the gospel of hope unfurled. May we, may we not hide it Father, we pray that you would fill this moment, this hour of preaching with the power of the Spirit in Jesus Christ. May we surrender ourselves and commit ourselves to be doers and not hearers only. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to make disciples? As we begin in our introduction here, I'd like to direct our attention to four other passages where what we think of is as the Great Commission is recorded. So here we have this command by Christ in Matthew's Gospel to make disciples. But elsewhere in the Gospel writings is this commission repeated. This was likely not the only time Jesus has made this, like it was his last words. It was reiterated, it was reinforced many times and and in different types of words. So, in Luke, join with me in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, and in the verses 46 to 49, Luke 24, 46 to 49, 
And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The Gospel writer John also records this. In John 20, please join with me there in John 20, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Luke, the Gospel writer, continues to record another telling of this great commission, in other words, in the first chapter in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Please follow with me there. Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so this commission has been repeated. It was part of the instruction of the resurrected Savior. This was not the only time, turning back to Matthew 28, this is not the only time where we find Jesus saying, this is what you're about ready to do. I'm about ready to unleash all power and authority through you upon this world. And nations will come before me and worship me. And the one who hears this and who bases their life's mission upon this, and listen, Friend, sister, brother in Christ, your mission is not something you come up with. Your mission is Christ's mission, and this mission is ours today. And as in Matthew 7.24, those who hear the mission of Christ or hear the word of Christ are like faithful and wise builders who build their life upon the rock. And so this, this commission isn't something that is nice to hear or that is thought of in generalities as something as the rest of the church to fulfill, but all of us together are to put ourselves under the mission or the commission of Jesus Christ. We are to be like the one who hears the word of God and does it like the wise man who builds his life on the rock, as was said in Matthew 7.24. But ever since the garden, there has been a disconnect between the hearing and the doing. They heard the commands of God, but they, they did not do them. What was the problem? Adam and Eve, like you and I so often, thought that God was holding, holding out on them. They'd come to believe that they could do something else and still be full of joy. They had come to believe that they could do something other than obey God's commands and be happy. And such is the state of many Christians and many of us many times in our life that we can do something other than the command of God and be full of joy. We believe that we could experience something else that could bring us more joy or a better type of joy and satisfaction. But Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus in the garden said that it was his joy to do the Father's will. It was his joy to do the Father's will. So too, listen, as disciples, as sons of God, like the Son of God, don't miss this, so too, as sons of God, like the Son of God, we should find joy 
And we will find joy in doing the will of God. In doing the will of God. And so disciples, in discipling others to hear and to do the Father's will, is a great, great joy. The world doesn't believe that discipleship is joyful, and sadly, many Christians don't believe discipleship is joyful. That a disciple is filled with joy to do the Father's will. And that's because many disciples aren't living in the joy of hearing and doing the Father's will. It's likely that joy has departed the Christian experience, and maybe your experience, if not for a season... And the reason why joy has departed your experience in the Christian faith is because you are hearing the will of God, but you are not doing the will of God. Another reason why many disciples don't find joy in, in their life is because they aren't showing others how to live in the joy of the Father's will. So not only are they not finding joy in doing the Father's will, but they're also, and this can describe us at times, we are not showing others how to find joy in the Father's will. And so, Christians can have a joyless life. Well, they, they can be happy, and we can be happy, but we're not joyful. We're not serving the Father. We're only serving ourselves, and so there's no joy. And sadly, this isn't just an individualistic characteristic of Christians, that is, just you and I individually, but often even this can caricaturize an entire church. Where there's a joyless church, there's, there's no disciples being made. Where there's a joyless church, there's no disciples being made. You see, the church of Christ should be the most joyful place where disciples are made. This is why I was saying earlier in our announcements that, that we are good at eating and we're good at praising. And so when we come together for worship time, but also for the praise and pie fellowship, we are really good at praising. We've been designed, we've been filled and inspired, we've been gifted to praise. We are professional praisers, and so we come together to do this. Jesus delighted to do the will of him who sent me. Is it your delight to do the will of God? A person who has been saved by grace and who understands the gospel of Jesus Christ and not only understands the forgiveness of the gospel, but understands the transformation that the gospel intends to do within us can say, like the psalmist says, how I love to do your law, O Lord. And Jesus said, it is my meat to do the will of him who sent me. Is it your meat to do the will of God? Is it your meat to do the will of God? And we as a congregation filled with men and women, we want to be characterized by that kind of discipleship mindset. Where we love to do the will of God. We love to obey the commission. We love to not only hear the will of God, that is the teaching or the preaching or the singing of God. But we love to do the will of God, facing the task unfinished. And so we want to be of this type of congregation. Gospel people who a gospel people uh, we want to be a people who are a gospel people who are thinking about the mission that Jesus gave to the church to make disciples. 
And we, we want to make disciples not just converts. We want to make disciples not just numbers and just church members, but actual disciples. We want to be a people who are doing what Jesus has commanded us to do. We want to know it and we want to do it. And so in this passage, we see that there are three participles in the making of disciples. And it's been a while since you've been in a grammar class. Same here. But let's understand what what participles look like. So going into verse number 19, we begin reading that go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There are three participles. Now, participles are kind of like a verb, but not with the full body or full condition of a verb. And there are three participles in this, and one is called go, and one is called baptizing, and one is called teaching. They're actually all in the same tense, even though our English, English translation says go, it should be maybe read better, going. And so each of these has a relationship to the main verb. And look at the main verb of the passage. The main verb of the passage is to make. So we have three what look like to be verbs, but they're not quite. They're called participles. They're not just adjectives. They're like a continuing tense of the verb that's associated with the verb. They could, if you say, accentuate or color the verb or even describe the verb. But all of those all together, that's a participle. So make disciples, and the type of making is the going, teaching, and baptizing, the going, baptizing, and teaching of this. So the first point then is to look into this and say, then how are disciples made? We see the going and the baptizing and teaching. So let's look firstly at how they are made in, the, in this. A disciple by Jesus' definition does everything that they have been taught about what he commands them to do. According to Jesus' definition of a disciple, the end result of the Great Commission is that there are people who are doing everything that Jesus has commanded them to do. Now, this does bring us to an initial question is, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? And a disciple of Jesus Christ, by Christ's definition, is someone who has come to the end of verse number 20. They have been, they have heard the gospel, responded to it by identifying with God in his three persons, with his people, and by learning of all the things he's committed them to do and is willing to obey them. So a disciple, simply put, is someone who has been taught and is doing what Jesus has commanded them to do. Now, if you're a Christian here, by nature and by default, you're a disciple. So as a disciple, are you obeying what Jesus has taught you to do? How did Jesus make disciples? Well, initially we think, oh, well, we remember he called Matthew. He said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Uh, he called Peter and James and John and said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Follow me. And he called all these guys and, and he called them. But let's think even further back than this. How did God, through Jesus Christ, make disciples? Well, firstly, we see that God came to people. He came to people. He went There's a going of God. 
You see, God didn't stay far away in, in the heavens, far above the earth, and said, I, I sure hope that someday disciples will be made. God came into this world through Jesus Christ, through the incarnate second person of the Trinity, and He came unto us, He came unto people, and He went to them. Okay? And what did He do next? He declared unto them that He was the Messiah. He showed them who He was. So He came, He showed, and He showed in many different ways the miracles of Christ, whether it was the creating of water into wine or from the boy's lunch into the feeding of thousands or the calming of the storm or the healing of the leper, the blind man or the lame or the raising of the dead. He showed continually what the Gospel looks like. This transformation by the power. Not only did He come and declare, but He came and He showed. And then thirdly, the way in which He made disciples is He told them. Just straightforward. If any man will come after Me, he should deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. And so on and throughout his parables and throughout his teachings, he's telling them clearly the way to the kingdom is by humbling oneself in a sinful in a repentance of the sinful condition and acknowledging total poverty, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. And so how did God make disciples? And how does God make disciples? Well, he came, he showed and he told. And that's the plan for discipleship. He's not asking us to do something that He hasn't already done and He will do through us. And that's the plan for discipleship is that so too, we as disciple makers, we come unto those who should call upon Christ as their Savior. We show them what a life is lived like, living underneath His Lordship, the joy and the peace that is only known to those who are children of the Heavenly Father, and we tell them of His saving love and merciful grace that is given unto them if only they will believe. So we come, we show, and we tell. And in so doing, by the way, as Jesus is in us with all power and authority, we are, and this word was, was a kind of a hip word in some years past, but I think it's very helpful in Christendom, and that is we become incarnational. That is that we are in Jesus Christ coming as Jesus Christ unto those who need Jesus Christ. We are coming, we are showing, and we are telling not merely of our own experience and not merely from our own wisdom, but we are telling with all force, with all power, with all authority, and with all presence of Jesus Christ Himself where you are as a disciple-maker, listen, where you are as a disciple-maker, Jesus is. And not only in, is in His presence, but is in His power and authority working through you a transformational and eternal work in the hearts of the unbelievers. And so we truly are, what we could say, incarnational, just as God through Jesus Christ became the incarnate Gospel so too God moves through His people and has considered us worthy to dwell within us to go to the nations to make disciples. Jesus hasn't left. 
where his people are, he is. And he is making disciples. And he joys to do so. He continues to do the will of the Father through you and I. And that's through evangelism. Under the influence of the godly Archbishop of Canterbury named William Temple, the Anglican Church came together in the early 19th century to organize a work for world evangelism. And they came up with a definition. They they defined what it would look like um, to evangelize. What would evangelism mean? And here's the definition they came up with. Evangelism means to present Christ Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. The people may come to put their trust in God through him, to accept him as their savior and serve him as their king in the fellowship of the church. Again, evangelism means to present Christ Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit that people may come to put their trust in God through him to accept him as their savior and serve him as their king in the fellowship of the church. This was the definition of evangelism that they came up with. And I noticed there are five parts of this. They present the truth. They present the person. They present the power. They present faith and repentance. And they present, listen, the church. God doesn't ask you and I to go and change hearts. And the Lord knows you and I have tried in our flesh to do so. God has asked us to go and tell the truth. To long for these people who are telling the truth to, to be changed. To long for them to be rescued, to be delivered, to be saved. To long for them to come to Christ. To long for them to experience the same grace that you and I have experienced. But it is God's business to change the heart. And that's uniquely and wonderfully and strangely encouraging. If you, like me, at times have been frustrated that a heart hasn't been changed, that it seems strange that we would also find it to be encouraging that we couldn't change the heart. You see, God hasn't called us to find a, a technique, a new way to convince someone or to produce a convert. He just is simply telling Telling us to bring the Son and the message of the Son to people. And by the way, the word nations indicates all different types of people. It isn't just a general word for the world, like all different types of people. And we are to bring the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ to the people. And a healthy local church understands that this is our mission. And a true Christian understands and has zeal to tell others about Jesus. So how are disciples made? By by coming to people, by showing them, and by telling them. Just like Jesus Christ had done. But once these disciples are born, once they are made... Then the next question we ask in this passage is, so then how are they cared for? Now listen to that word care. How are they cared for? Because so often we look at this passage as sort of a mechanical passage. All right, it's step number one, get them saved. Step number two, get them wet. Step number three, have them stand in front of the church and become a member. This is the process. 
It's lifeless, it's dead, it's mechanical, it's sterile, it's academic. And so often we have come to this passage and we've looked at this and this is just how it's going to be an assembly line of disciples. But listen, this question is a, is a far greater question than, than how are disciples born is. How are they to live? How are they going to be cared for? How are disciples going to be cared for? I don't know if you've ever noticed, but that baptism is a way in which God cares for us. We're going to baptize these ones who have come to know Christ, who have trusted in Him with their salvation. And the baptism happens in the fellowship of believers. We just see this one instance in the book of Acts. We dare not make a church polity or a church policy out of this, the the baptism of Philip and and the eunuch. But this is a, a thing to behold of God's people. Baptizing the nations is baptizing the disciples, is baptizing people in the realm of the church. You see, baptizing people in this disciple-making endeavor is to bring them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is earthly, in an earthly form, showing them who God is by means of the church, God's agent of grace. It is helping them to see that the church is with them, that the church is for them, the church is here for them. It is an identity with the church. It is showing this new disciple they are not alone in this journey. That there are others who are baptized, who are following Jesus Christ. That they do not have to struggle and agonize through through the sanctification process by themselves. But it is not only the church as numerous and as as large as the church is, but it is also bringing them into the fellowship and helping them see the fellowship of the Trinity. As I was studying this passage, even in recent conversations with some other people in the past several weeks, I've been meditating on this passage and really trying to understand this passage in a, in a better light than what I had previously understood it to, to be. But when we look into this verse number 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this isn't just merely a declaration of the baptizer. That is, as I as a pastor, you've seen other pastors baptize someone, you hear them say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It isn't just calling about the name of God and His blessing and even significantly identifying his work in this believer's life. But there's a far more rich truth that is found in here, and this is better understood to be this way, baptizing them into the name of. Into the name of. And it is even more clearly understood in this way, baptizing them into the fellowship with. Yes, there is identity, and yes, there is blessing imparted upon the obedient disciple, but this is better understood to, to mean this, that this one who is being baptized is being shown that they have been brought into fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. This expresses that they have a new relationship with God. They have a new relationship with God. And they have this new relationship with the people of God. And the picture is this, that we are plunged and immersed into the fellowship and the identity with the Trinity of God. 
It is a full, comprehensive, enveloping, immersive baptism into oneness with the Trinity, into unbroken fellowship with the Trinity, baptizing them into the fellowship. Let them know, teach them at least by the very first act of obedience of a disciple, that they have been brought into this this imperishable, this unbreakable fellowship, communion with God the Father and with Jesus the Son and with the Holy Spirit. Let them know this salvation is bigger than they ever imagined. This relationship is fuller than they ever even asked for or could comprehend in the sinner's prayer as they bent their knee before the Savior. Let them know they have been brought into fellowship, not with merely the church, although that is significant and wonderful, but with God Almighty in all three persons, baptizing them into the fellowship. Not merely the reputation, not merely the identification, but the fellowship. And Jesus, listen, in Matthew 28, and Matthew's signaling this to us, that Jesus is bringing together his many statements about the Father and the Spirit through uh, the book of Matthew. He's bringing them all into like one sentence. His theology of the Trinity, Jesus is bringing it all into this because he wants us to know this, that the Great Commission will be a Trinitarian work for Trinitarian glory. For Trinitarian fellowship. They have been baptized and immersed into this fellowship, so how are they cared for? First of all, they're cared for all of God and all of His people. And listen, this is the type of disciple-making that ought to characterize a healthy church, is bringing, bringing believers into a greater understanding and acceptance and embrace and living out of the fellowship that they can have and that they have through the Trinity and with the church. But thirdly, how are they to live? That's how they begin to live. That's the assurances of of their new life. But how are they then to live? How are they then to live? And this is where, in verse number 20, Jesus says, don't leave them wet. Teach them. Teach them about the fullness of life that has been found in a fellowship with God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that I told you. Teach them all of these things. Jesus taught as one with authority, and He gives that authority to teach. He gives that authority in the teaching even to those who will faithfully teach His teachings. That is, you feel, you and I may feel at times insufficient to teach the Word of God. We may feel that we have limited knowledge and limited experience. But listen, what we do not lack is limited authority and we should not lack is limited urgency. And Jesus says, the power and the authority that I have uh, to, 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 um, to make disciples of all nations will flow through you as you teach me, they, the people will submit and respond to the teaching as it is in accordance with my teaching. Listen, in our teaching ministry, we are to participate, we are participants in Jesus' authority in heaven and on earth. We are putting things in order. We are righting wrongs and bringing the message of life to those who are dead. In our teaching ministry, we are putting things in order. 
I like how the Apostle Paul told Titus to do in the church. He said, put things in order. And listen, this is what this is what's what's being done. I was listening, I listened on the way into the church in the morning was at eight forty. I have a radio station I listen as I drive here to church in the mornings. And it's a remodeling show. And the uh, the guy, if I said his name, I, I don't know for sure it's him, but but uh, he said the remodeler's motto is making the crooked straight. And this is this is what we are we are doing. We are as we teach the word of Christ, we are bending things back. We're putting things in order. We are creating order out of chaos. And you and I need the teaching of Christ the application of the teaching of Christ to do that constantly because you and I walk out of here after a Sunday sermon and our life gets chaotic the moment we step out in the parking lot. And yes, we need more teaching, but but yes, we also need some more doing. But the teaching of the commands of Christ puts lives in order and brings life to death, brings death to life. And so Jesus says, bring them into the fellowship. Let them see the fellowship of, of the Trinity and even through his disciples, through the fellowship of the church. But teach them how to live like I taught you how to live. And so when we teach Christ, we disseminate the lordship of Christ, the authority of Christ in this world as we proclaim his truths. Listen, the authority of the church, and the church, by the way, has authority granted unto it by our Lord Jesus Christ. The authority of the church is derived in Christ. No church, and listen, no leader in the church has autonomous power and authority. Authority is not an office, but in the relationship that a person has with Jesus Christ and his truth. Jesus says, teach them everything that I said. Teach them everything. Notice, teach them to observe all. Notice, by the way, how, how repeated the word all is in this passage. Remember we had seen tell, told, said all through chapter 28. Now notice, beginning in verse number, seven, verse number 18, Now let's find how comprehensive everything is. Jesus came and said to them, All authority. And then he says in verse number 19, All nations. And then he says in verse number 20, Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And there's really kind of one more all in here. I will be with you. Always. So we have all authority, we have all nations, all teachings, and all ways. And so the church will teach the Word of God, it will preach the Word of God, and it will never stop teaching it. And it's not just teaching it by knowledge or means of intellectual intellectualism, but it's the church is to teach its practical injunctions. It is, it, what does it look like, boots on the ground, to live out Jesus Christ in our lives? What is it like to live in this transformation uh, of grace that has taken place in my life? Truly teach them 
teach them so it becomes part of their life to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so these are commands to be followed in life. And the commands even lead to life. The command to obey Jesus leads to joy. The command to obey Jesus even leads to life, to fullness of life, to abundance of life. It's not merely data. It's not merely information or even ethics. And so, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And and so we recognize that this discipleship won't end. It won't end. None of us here today could say, I've been discipled. Now we understand what you might say when when you first become a believer and someone came alongside of you and and introduced you to the ways of the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ and how to walk with him. We understand you might say, when I first became a Christian, I was discipled by. But biblically, we also understand that none of us have arrived at the past tense of the word discipled. And so it may, seem, it may seem just too broad or gentle to you to say that we are to make disciples and here at church we're making disciples and you look around and you say, but, but some here are already discipled. Well, my friend, we are discipling one another as our task. As long as we walk on this earth, we are discipling one another and Jesus wants every disciple to grow into the knowledge and obedience of every word he has spoken to us. He wants all of us to continue to be conformed in discipleship. I am still being discipled. Now lastly, here's two points in our conclusion that I want us to understand and this really has to, has to shape our thinking about this passage. And that is this, first of all, that God has willed it. God has willed it. He has designed it so that the way of being an obedient, growing disciple is to make disciples that one of the ways in which there is health in your spiritual life, one of the ways in which we can can see joy and peace and live knowing that our meat is to do the Father's will is that we are pressing into the call to make disciples. He has designed that you cannot be a healthy disciple if you're not discipling. It is part of our sanctification process. And you cannot grow or be a healthy Christian if you are not doing the will of God. And we ought to come to a place of realization and conviction where we say, it is my meat to do the Father's will. It is my meat to accomplish the mission that Jesus has purposed for me. I have no other mission than the Great Commission. And so often we think that we will be happy by not, by not doing the Father's will. And it's an amazing thing, and I so often am reflective about this as a parent, that God uses my children to disciple me. Not that my children are further along in their faith, and their knowledge of Jesus Christ, but that God uses them to show me more and more how I need to grow in Him. So too, as we are set about accomplishing the mission of making disciples, God uses our discipling to disciple us. And I could tell you that one of the greatest joys of of vocational ministry as called as a a pastor before you has been that God would grow in me as I desire 
and try to help you grow in him. That God does a work of sanctification that is incredibly humbling, is devastating. And I wonder often what, what kind of a Christian I would be if I wasn't um, a vocational pastor. I often have thought that I, I probably would be a pathetic Christian if I wasn't serving him in this way. And so he knew that and placed me in a way where I wouldn't escape his call on my life and his commission on my life to make disciples and knew that he wanted to design me in that way. But God has willed it. He has designed it that you cannot call yourself an obedient, healthy Christian if you're not involved in making disciples. We'd like to think that we could do, we could shortcut it, bypass it. But he puts it in our path and says, I don't know what your life mission is about. And it doesn't matter. I'm the one who writes your mission statement for your life. Make disciples. And secondly, we're a people, we're a church who has not only come to know the grace of the gospel so that it changes us deep within, but we have come to know the meaning and the power of the resurrection. We are people who have become followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. And God desires and he's designed, as we had said, to, to call upon us and and the calling within us to be disciple-making disciples. That's our mission. It's our joyful mission. And any church who isn't on that mission just simply is not doing the Father's will. But we will not only know it here at Providence, but we will, we will want to do it. It'll be our joyful task. You see, Matthew 28 isn't like this building climax that we come to the end of the chapter and we feel like and they live happily ever after and it's just this amazing end to the chapter. All of Matthew 28 is the climax. The resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ living now through his people the whole chapter is filled with power and anticipation and glory, and motivation, and mission, it is all about this great climax. So we don't come to verses 18 through 20 in our Bibles and say, wow, that that was just a really sure ending to this amazing book. We come to the whole entire chapter and we say, here is our risen Lord. We too look at the empty tomb and we tell others, listen, there's an empty tomb. I know, it's incredible. It's never happened before, but it's happened. And I tell you, He's alive and He's living in me. And let me tell you about Him. Let me show you Him. I'm coming to you. I'm going to show you Him. And I'm going to tell you about Him. And that's how Matthew 28, the, the, verses 18 through 20, are not disconnected from verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 28. There's an empty tomb and it's always going to stay empty because believers will never go there. They will go with the risen Lord. And it's ours. It's ours to tell people. You don't have to go to the tomb. He's risen. Your tomb can be empty too. We go, we show, and we tell. Let's pray.